It was about 3.45 in the morning. And uh, I heard a boom. It woke me up. I was probably close to a mile away. I thought it was a car backfiring that was parked right outside my window. It was a tremendous explosion. I immediately ran out the door. And we saw these huge flames leaping into the air. And looked up at the sky, and literally there were papers coming out of the sky. And said to somebody else, what was that? And he said, well, they finally did it. Meaning they finally, you know, blew up Sterling Hall. Sterling Hall. Sterling Hall. Sterling Hall. Sterling Hall. The news tells you what's happening now. But what about what happened then? Welcome to NBC15's new podcast, Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State. I'm Gabriella Rusk. And I'm Charlie Shortino. Together, we'll take you through cultural and historical moments that have shaped our state and who we are. Today's episode takes us back more than half a decade as we discuss the Strolling Hall bombing and the campus culture around it. August 24th, 1970, 3.42 in the morning, most people on or near the University of Wisconsin campus were sleeping, though some were working and some were studying. Four UW students were also awake then, but for a very different reason. Like many students at the time, David Fine, Leo Burt, Dwight Armstrong and Carl Armstrong opposed the Vietnam War, but on that early Monday morning, they took their opposition to an extreme. In an attempt to demolish what was known as the Army Math Center, the four men drove a stolen van and parked it on the side of Sterling Hall. Inside the van was ammonium nitrate, fuel oil, and sticks of dynamite. While David Fine called UW police, Carl Armstrong lit the fuse, and they all jumped in the car and drove off from the area. The bomb ignited, and the Sterling Hall explosion could be heard for 10 miles outside of the UW campus. Several people were injured in the explosion, and one person, 33-year-old postdoctoral student Robert Fosnacht, was killed. When I think back, uh, with the most sadness, is seeing Robert just a few minutes before them. He had his bag. He was ready to leave. That was the voice of David Schuster who was an international graduate student at the time. NBC15 interviewed him last year during the 50th anniversary of the bombing. He was also working in Sterling Hall that early morning and survived the bombing after waking up pinned under the rubble. Schuster says the only reason he didn't immediately die from the bomb is because he was standing by a building support. And while he doesn't remember much from the explosion itself, one certain feeling sticks with him from that day. You know, we hear of something called survivor's guilt. Is that something you've had to live with? Uh, not at all. It's just a feeling of incredible sadness, as I mentioned before, that Robert should have been there at that particular time on his way home within a few minutes. So I felt really strongly on behalf of him and his family um, and his work. Um, you know, so that's the strongest emotional thing that remains for me. Later in this episode, we'll hear how the deadly explosion impacted campus culture. We'll also sit down with Phil Little, who worked for the UW Police Department at the time. I heard it and felt it. <laughs> the intensity of everything was so strong. 
But first, what led to the deadly event? Up until that fatal day, the Vietnam War had been going on for just over 15 years. The United States got involved in the Vietnam War probably 64, 65 at least, uh, not from a troop standpoint. The troops were sent in later, but there was certainly some involvement uh, in the early 60s and really even the late 50s to a certain degree. At the very heart of the war was the desire of North Vietnam. The North desired a communist regime modeled after the Soviet Union and China, while the South wished to preserve a country closely aligned with Western values. The country as a whole was so unused to this kind of divisive situation that uh, a lot of official responses to rallies and things like that were really overdone. And we had events such as in 1967 where the, the Dow Chemical riots took place. By February 1967, UW students took to Bascom Hill to make a statement, protesting the Dow Chemical Company's recruitment efforts on campus. Now, to provide some context, the company made napalm, which is a flammable gel, dropped in Vietnam. While the first day of the protest was peaceful, the second day was a very different story. Dozens made their way to the Commerce Building, now known as Ingram Hall. Students began to surround officers stationed outside of where Dow interviews were being held and staged a sit-in. In just a half hour, as many as 200 people filled the east-west corridor. Things took a turn once one student allegedly attempted to prevent entry of an interviewee, prompting police to make an arrest for disorderly conduct. The arrest was stopped as the crowd of students grew hostile, and by 11.30, an additional 100 to 200 joined in on this protest, prompting police to call for backup. Crowds outside grew by the numbers. Police were severely outnumbered and began striking the student protesters, dragging them out from the building. Eventually, tear gas was used to disperse the crowd. It was the first time it was ever used on campus. Officers set a perimeter, and eventually the crowds dispersed, but not without injuring three officers and leaving dozens of others in need of medical attention. If there had not been the protests on this campus, I doubt if these young men would have taken it on themselves to dynamite a structure. And actually, in actually living it at the time, it was like it was obvious something was going to happen. Was it obvious? It was obvious to me that something was going to happen because this is, I mean, where could it go? You know, uh, Carl Armstrong was on campus and, you know, these guys started off, I don't want to say they were bumbling radicals, mm. but th they were unsophisticated, let's say. So that they, before the Sterling Hall bombing, they, they tried many different radical attacks to try to make their point known. The first of which was an attack on the ROTC building, which was basically the Red Gym. Sure. And their early attacks were just Molotov cocktails. I say just Molotov yeah. cocktails because obviously it escalated after that. So they threw these sort of fire bombs at the ROTC building and, uh, you know, minor fire. There really wasn't that much damage done, if any. But Second still, it's hard to imagine oh, no minor damage done. Right, can I you mean, imagine that nowadays? No. With you, the cameras that are on? I mean, they, they got away with this. I mean, this was, this was standard procedure in the late 60s. Well, and just going to campus. class knowing that happened the other day. Right. I mean, you, you hear accounts from people that were in their dorms and they just look out their window and there'd be protests daily and yeah. police involved and, you know, occasionally they became more violent. I could hear and see and smell tear gas 
grenades being thrown. You know, you, you knew that you could hear the sounds of glass being broken. You could hear yelling. You could hear sirens. You see fire engines. I mean, kids would light fires on campus. So it was a pretty distressing time. Well, anyway, their second attack took place on the UW Primate Lab, which also doesn't exist anymore. They thought it was the Selective Service Office, but it was actually the Primate Lab where mm -hmm. they were doing experiments on monkeys. Now, they didn't, they didn't attack it because they had a problem with the monkeys. They, had a, they attacked it because they thought it was the Secret Service or the Selective Service building. So that just kind of shows you they weren't totally... There wasn't a lot of forethought. Yes, they, they were just kind of you know, going along and, and, and trying to make their point known. And there wasn't a lot of research done, right. say, on what happened. So this, this gang recruited, you know, Carl recruited his brother, Dwight. He recruited Leo Burt, and he recruited David Fine. And this group became known as the New Year's Gang because of another attack they tried. So they go to Middleton Airport, and one of the, one of the two, either David Fine or Leo Burt, had flown a small plane before, but really had no license and really no experience and had never flown at night. They steal a plane from Maury Field. As you Middleton. do. <laughs> As you do. Right. And they flew to the uh, Badger Army Munitions plant where they, they made uh, bullets, basically, the, the one up north of Salt yeah. City. So now they got a little more sophisticated. They, they took ammonium nitrate and filled mayonnaise jars with it and um, kerosene and lit these and threw them out the window, if you can imagine. A pilot with no experience flying 750 feet off the ground, throwing these homemade bombs out the window to try to blow up the Army munitions plant. Oh, my gosh. None of them went off. So then they, had, they came back and landed the plane at Sauk City. There's an airport in Sauk City. Picked up their mayonnaise jars. Well, no, well they, <laughs> they left them there. And then they, you know, they were found the next day. Uh, and then um, they, they, they went on. So that took place December 31st of 1969. New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. So that's where they got their, their name, the, the New Year's Gang. It's interesting to hear all of that, though, 50 years later, right? Because you don't think about all of what led up to it. And 50 years later, we don't hear those stories of Molotov cocktails being thrown at buildings, which today would be the story we would cover for a news day. So that's interesting to hear. Just, it wasn't a one-time thing. It was they had been trying this for some time. I find it so interesting because I was a student on UW campus. Mm -hmm. Most of the planning for this took place at the Nitty Gritty. The bar, the nitty gritty, which it wasn't, you know, it looked different back then. A long time Mark college Shapiro, staple. Yeah, Mark Shapiro opened that, former TV guy, opened that in the late 60s. And it became kind of a hub for this subculture in Madison, this mm -hmm. radical subculture. And that's where this whole attack was planned. So these guys would meet in the nitty gritty and go, what can we do? What can we do? And, you know, college students talk and drink a beer. Well, we can do this. Mm -hmm. well, we can do, we can make it even better. We can do this. We can do this. And. Pretty soon it came to, well, let's bomb the Army Math Research Center, mm -hmm. which was in Sterling Hall at the time. And the, the Research Center was a big point of contention during the 60s, late 60s, and, and up into the 70s. It wasn't just those guys who had a problem with it. Most of the radicals had a problem with it because they believed research was being done there for weaponry that was killing innocent citizens in Vietnam. What Army Math did was they designed weapons that 
were designed for the purpose of killing and maiming as many people on the ground without putting American troops at risk. And we felt that that, that mission to design those weapons was incompatible with a peaceful learning environment and that Army Math should leave campus. So that's kind of what led up to this. They, you know, they kind of, you know, an unsophisticated group gradually becoming more and more sophisticated. And I use the word sophisticated loosely because they had no idea really what was going to happen. And, you know, Kent State took place in the spring of 1970. Mm -hmm. And I think that further radicalized them because they felt uh, the government was attacking their peers at that point. These were students that got killed on uh, the Kent State University campus, which were doing similar protests that were taking place uh, on the UW campus. So that further radicalized them. I wanted to make one, one more point. The bombing of the Army munitions plant was the first air attack. It is considered the first air attack on the United States since Pearl Harbor. And that took place right up Highway 12 from Madison. So, you know, all these, these interesting, and the bombing of Sterling Hall was the largest domestic terrorism. It was really the first and largest domestic terrorism act until the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm. But uh, yeah, an interesting lead up to, you know, what became not only a national, but really an international story centered right here in Madison. And setting the stage of what it was like on campus for students, for staff, for anyone living in and around UW-Madison, just the tensions that were there that existed at the time. Right, and, and, up, and up until this point, most of the protests, they considered to be peaceful. Now, they, you know, they gradually got more and more violent as, as time went on, especially once you got to the Dowd protests. But most of the protests were peaceful. You know, when, when Sterling Hall was bombed, you know, that was just before school started in fall of 1970. And all these students came back and they were, you know, a little bit disillusioned with, you know, the whole violent protesting mm -hmm. thing. And that kind of turned the page on, on how people saw protests on the UW campus. Now, following the Sterling Hall bombing, my sense is, is that that ended the days of turmoil on this campus. It showed uh, the student agitators where they were going. They were killing each other. In the early days of the um, confrontations with police, it was easy for students to pose as heroes, to walk around with uh, their arm in a sling and with a bruise on their head and so mm -hmm. on. And it was, it was sexy to have been injured in the conflict and heroic to be engaged in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but after the uh, Sterling Hall bombing, they said, what are we doing? We're becoming our enemy. Uh, and I, that, that really was, I think, all over the country, the turning point. Now we'll hear from someone who was around campus during the explosion. Phil Little was part of the official response to the Sterling Hall bombing. After submitting his two-week notice to UW Police Department, then in its early stages, Little was put back to work in dispatch. Okay, I was a police officer with the University of Wisconsin Police Department. We were a small department. We had about 23 uniformed officers, um, four sergeants, a lieutenant, and a captain, and chief. I had just resigned from the department a week before the bombing. I, I had turned in my resignation. It was effective August 30th. 
and I was going back to college to get my bachelor's. And so because of that, they said, all right, Phil, you're going to sit and do the dispatching for the next two weeks because we don't want you out on the field. So And you put your two weeks in. Yeah, I put my two weeks in on the desk. And it happened that night on Sunday night, Monday morning, the 24th of August, 1970. And uh, I was dispatching. We had a homebrew type dispatching console, which had been built by university people. And above that was all the fire alarms for the entire campus. We had a cadre of security officers who were actually playing clothes because they couldn't afford the uniforms, I think, at the time. And they would go from building to building and call in. They didn't have radios, so they called in when they were finished checking buildings, and they had several routes. Anyhow, at about 3.34, uh, just before the incident, well, I got a call from Sergeant Bob Berencott of the Madison Police Department, who was dispatching for the city that night. And he says, Phil, he says, we've got this call, just came in, it says, there's a bomb in Sterling Hall set to go off in five minutes or whatever, and we're not kidding. And he says, I don't know what you want to do with that, but that's what I just got. I said, well, okay, I'll put it out to our people. So I hit the transmitter and I said, the Madison Police Department has received a call saying that there's a bomb in Sterling Hall, it's gonna go off five minutes and they're not kidding. And kaboom, and all my alarm panels flashed. Then the next thing on the radio, one of the, our officers says, I guess they weren't kidding. <laughs> so then they, things began and it was a real mess, that whole, I stayed on from 11 o'clock that Sunday night until 4.30 the next day on Monday afternoon because I was the only one available to do the dispatching. You know, I guess when we hear of stories like this, you're in the building, right? You're in the dispatching. Yes. You're not seeing it on the ground. No. You're just hearing almost the senses. I'm the, running the show. You're <laughs> hearing the audio. You're hearing, yeah. uh, you know, calls coming in, but you didn't actually see it. I heard it and felt it. <laughs> the, in, the intensity of everything was so strong that there are things that had to be done immediately. And I'm the type of person that can handle emergencies pretty well without getting all panicked. So I methodically got things going, people going the right place and so forth. In those days, unlike today, each police department had its own and separate radio system. In fact, the county radio, um, a couple officers in the county traffic, we had a traffic bureau, they stopped this, this car, the guys leaving, but they had no information, so they had to let them go. You know, kind of, I guess, getting back to just the feeling in general of, you know, protesters versus police during that time, um, you know, kind of explain. Well, all through know. the preceding year or two, we had had these uh, marches and demonstrations. They'd collect around noon at the library mall, and then they would march wherever. They might go up to the Capitol. They might go up Bascom Hill. They might go over to T-16, which was ROTC. They'd go anywhere that had anything to do with the Vietnam War. But when the bomb occurred, 
that was basically the end of demonstrations at the UW because nobody wanted to be associated with death and all that. Was there a fear, I guess, leading up to this that one of these protests could become violent? Always. We'd have 5,000 people marching. Initially, they thought, well, we'll take police in the buses and we'll bus them around. Well, that didn't work because the buses got ruined. Then uh, they thought, well, let's bring in police agencies from other cities and, and uh, sheriff departments from other counties. Well, that didn't work either because they were not familiar with the campus and didn't know what building was what. So they didn't know where to go and so forth. We had helicopters at night going over with their lights shining down on us. The protesters would break into the police cars and bust them all up. And I remember one scene where City Madison police car was overturned and set on fire on State Street. So it got a little rough. You know, there are so many students who have gone through campus now who were not alive, and that's been the case for many years. Right. Um, you know, what do you hope people remember? What do you hope um, we've learned from from this? I know it's hard to put into to words all of that, but what would you hope a, a student on campus now knows about this? Well, I think we're, we're now going through another era <laughs> of unrest, and I hope that we keep it peaceful. That would be my greatest hope. Um, it, it's very hard because we're being bifurcated by various things that are in our lives. Things are happening and uh, we're taking various sides and we're getting polarized and I hope that can dissipate. Connections can form again. Yeah, yeah. Once again, that was Phil Little. And the bombers now, Carl Armstrong, the oldest of the two brothers, went into hiding but was eventually caught in 1972. He served a total of seven years and returned to Madison where he operated a juice cart on Library Mall, loose juice. He also, he also was the owner of Radical Rye, which was a sandwich shop. It's where the Overture Center is now, so that obviously got torn down for the Overture Center to be built. But they, they became quote-unquote capitalists, these uh, radicals of the late 60s, early 70s in Madison became capitalists in Madison and business owners in Madison. So it's, it's kind of a, an interesting, you know, circle of life kind of thing. Did you guys. ever get juice or a sandwich? I did get a sandwich at the oh, Radical yeah? Rye. I never got any loose juice. <laughs> never much of a juice guy, you know? Just a sandwich guy. Right. Much more of a sandwich guy. Uh, anyway, uh, Dwight was arrested in Toronto in 1977. He served three years, died in 2010 from lung cancer. And David Fine, arrested in California in 1976, served three years. Leo Burt, however, is still at large. After the bombing, he fled to Canada with David Fine and still has not been seen. So Leo Burt remains at large. There's still, I believe, a $150,000 reward for information that leads to his arrest. He holds the dubious honor of being the longest running FBI fugitive ever. Uh, it's been since 1970, so 51 years now he has been on the run. Uh, and whether he's dead or alive, nobody knows at this time. They did stake out his parents' funerals, and mm. he did not show up at either one of them. Interesting. Um, he does remain at large, and the FBI is still actively searching for Leo Burt. 
As students mourned the loss of a classmate, few wanted to be associated with unnecessary violence in the name of protests. Beyond emotional destruction, Sterling Hall was in shambles. The bombing resulted in nearly $6 million in damage, equating to more than $41 million today. It took time to reconstruct the building, and there was a large strain on academia. Researchers and students with labs in and around the building lost years of work, having to rebuild from scratch. But beyond the damages to student well-being, attitudes, and education, the bombing was the second bookend to anti-war culture on campus. Yeah, I think, you know, just going to how much this changed UW's campus and the culture around it. And, um, you know, here we are 51 years later still talking about something like this, you know, goes to show just the impact that it had over time. Yeah, and, and I think not only UW's campus, but really campuses all across the country, I think became much less prone to violent type protests uh, after the bombing of Sterling Hall. I think a lot of people were aghast at uh, what had happened here in Madison. Thanks for listening to our podcast, Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State. Look out for upcoming episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. We want to give a huge thank you to Phil Little for being on our podcast and telling his story. Special thanks to Troy Reeves from UW-Madison's library and UW Archives for those archived interviews of UW students, faculty, and staff who recounted Sterling Hall. The sound from David Schuster comes from John Stofflet's interview with him in 2020 for the 50-year anniversary of the bombing. Making Wisconsin a History of the Badger State is hosted by Charlie Shortino and me, Gabriella Rusk. It's produced and edited by Vanessa Reza and Keegan Schlosser. It's overseen by Nick Viviani and Jessica Leshesky.